Trevor and we are the Boo Crew. Black lives do matter. The systemic racism in this country needs to be addressed and abolished. We need to stay loud and use our voices in the name of justice for George Floyd to bring awareness and policy change. And now, welcome to episode 131. Here's a Boo Crew Fright Fact. Robert Eggers, who directed The Witch, wishes you couldn't see Anya Taylor-Joy's earring holes in the film. It seriously bothers him so much, (laughs) he wishes he could CG them out. He also realizes his pickiness and added that maybe that's just getting insane. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that throws it out of the era, huh? Yeah, it does. Yeah. It bothers him. Wow. Can't stop. Like, that's the one thing he just focuses on. That is so funny. The Boo Crew is pleased to announce the debut of our official Patreon. You can now join the Boo Crew Creature Core at patreon.com slash the Boo Crew. If you enjoy the show, this is a really unique way to become an interactive and special part of the Boo Crew family. This will truly let you behind the scenes and give you access to an exclusive Instagram portal for tours of the Speakeasy Studio here, including Q&As with us, highlights from our prop collection, and other fun randomness. There are a couple of bonus episodes up now some videos and photos including an improvised musical performance from Hereditary's Alex Wolf, among other things. We'd like to thank our new patrons and friends Macy Baker, Christopher Vielma, Spencer Iverson, Sarai Osario, Britt Miller, Haley Brock, and Brian Lopez Santos. You guys are the best. There are Boo Crew pens, buttons, and stickers on the way to you. Now, if you haven't gotten them already by the time you are hearing this. We are pleased to announce the opening of the Boo Crew online store at talesfromtheboocrew.com slash shop with shirts, including limited pre-orders for our new long sleeve shirt design featuring the official logo of our Patreon. We're taking orders now, so please make sure to get your order in quickly. Just a reminder, Creature Core members get a discount code for 10% off everything in the store. This episode, we are talking to incredible Emmy-winning makeup effects legend, producer, writer, and director, Greg Nicotero. Greg and KNB Effects have worked on so many of your favorite horror films, including Drag Me to Hell, Army of Darkness, Evil Dead 2, Bride of Reanimator, Pulp Fiction. The list is endless. He is also the executive producer, makeup effects supervisor, and primary director for AMC's The Walking Dead and Fear the Walking Dead. And he is also responsible for bringing the world of Creepshow to television for Shudder. The first season is available to own on Blu-ray and DVD now. He'll let you in on the entire process, from story to creature fabrication, to filming as well as his work on one of our favorite movies, Jennifer's Body, and his passion for collecting and preserving some of horror's most sought-after relics. Step into the makeup chair and get ready to rock. Hey, creeps. It's Greg Nicotero, and you are devouring the latest issue of The Boo Crew. The Boo Crew dusts a fright flick off the shelf for Ah! Horror Homework. We're going to go around the room and around the world wide web all the way out to Leo in beautiful downtown. Eagle, Eagle Rock! Eagle Rock. <laughs> they each highlight a horror flick to each other and possibly even to you that we consider a must-see or perhaps worth a revisit. Starting with Mr. Leo. Dude, I spin the wheel, man. The little roulette wheel on Netflix and I've found this little gem called House of the Witch 2017. Wow. wow. We've been doing that a lot lately, too. We'll just scroll through either Shudder and Netflix and all these new yeah. horror films will pop up and be like, this looks like, like it's almost like going to the video store again where you could actually judge it from the box art. Yes. Yes, exactly. So was this exactly. one of those? Or was it, what, what did it look like? I, you know, I don't recall the, uh, the cover. It looked intriguing, but I remember thinking House of the Witch. I never heard of this, but I want to, you know, I'm, I'm going to watch this. I'm going I'm to commit, you know? And uh, so I pressed play, and just so you know, it's directed by Alex Merkin. It stars a bunch of beautiful young teen actors, uh, Emily Batter, Darren Mann, uh, Michelle Randolph, to name a few. 
So this movie is basically about a group of daring teens that find themselves in a fight for their lives inside a haunted house when a sinister spirit crashes their Halloween party. Oh, wow. So, so it takes yeah. place on Halloween. On Halloween, yeah. So, and of course, you know, the title character tells you that it's a witch. So there's a lore of this Annabelle Foster who's uh, accused of being a witch. So she was sentenced to death by drowning pit. This movie, you know, I, I did not know what to expect. Later, after watching the movie, I found out that it was actually made or played on TV. So, the cut that I saw might be like an unrated or TV, like, MA or rated R version, because it just definitely did not play on TV. There's a lot of gore in this movie. <laughs> so, I'm like, there's no way it played on TV. This movie has some great elements to it that remind me of, like, the Blair Witch Project and discovering and exploring, it, like, a haunted house and all... Uh, while each character endures some, you know, they endure some truly frightening things at the hand of a witch. It's, you know, it's like one part supernatural, it's one part horror, and it has some great gore. And if you don't believe me, just check out the credits, because special effects makeup artist Robert Kurtzman did all the gore. No way! Yeah, that's right, that's, that's right. awesome. So yeah, it's pretty, it has some pretty cool stuff, man. And uh, this movie is like one part supernatural, one part horror, and has some, you know, some great gore sprinkled in. I really enjoy this movie. I'd love to see more of it or a sequel of some sort that explores more about the witch, the house, and why she does what she does, which is basically frighten, torture, and kill people. But uh, it's pretty cool, man. It's, it's, it's an unexpected uh, a little gem there that I found. And like I said, this is not the TV-rated version. This is the unrated version. So you're going to get the, all the cool effects. I would like to assign a 2018 film called The Haunted. Now, this was recommended to us indirectly by one of our BFFs and friend of the show, Lydia Hurst, who joined us on episode number nine, one of the OG guests wow. here on the Pooh Crew. Yes, that's a while that's right. ago. Yeah. Boy, yeah, this is yeah. episode 131 now. Oh, my God. So, Lydia, wow, since the beginning. And she's a massive talent. Not only on screen herself in many horror projects and TV shows, but she uh, is actually a massive fan and collector as well, just like us. So Which we, is awesome. Yeah, we get to nerd out together on, on a lot of things. So when she posted this, we knew it was going to be good. And man, is it ever good. It's a British film written and directed by David Holroyd, who comes mostly from a TV background. This is his second feature. It stars Nick Bailey, Kirsty Steele, and Sophie Stevens. It screened at LA Scream Fest back in 2018, which is, I'm assuming, where Lydia saw it. And it's now available on iTunes and Amazon. So the director said in a recent interview that out of frustration, he said to his producers, let's just make a cheap, fast, haunted house film with one actor for $20,000, and there you go. So they shot it at the producer's <laughs> parents' house. It was shot completely with handheld. There's no grip equipment or dollies or anything. A few of the things that I loved about it, it's very timely as the characters are stuck in this isolated house in the middle of nowhere under a, a sense of quarantine, if you will. It's just over an hour. It's an hour and 15 minutes, which is a wow, rare thing, it's, right? It's almost unheard of. That actually, I think, makes it kind of creepy. It helps elevate the creepiness. It's something just isn't right about it. And that's the feeling you get throughout this whole experience. It all takes place in real time in one house as a night shift nurse is on her very first gig taking care of an elderly patient suffering from dementia. It is one hell of a ghost story. It takes its time. It's beautiful and haunting in that old world sense. The camera spends a lot of time sort of shooting from around corners and focusing into dark corridors, which reminded me a lot of that flavor that Oz Perkins brought to I'm the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House. There's also right. an occult element to this and a creepy book. It works on so many levels, and the twist is going to linger in your mind afterwards. So happy we discovered this one. Thanks to Lydia. And meanwhile, David has another horror film ready to go, as well as some other film and TV concepts on the way. So David Holroyd's The Haunted. Get it on Amazon, iTunes, or I guess it's Apple Movies now. Is that What do you call it, Leo? Uh, what is it? Apple, Apple, Apple TV. TV. Yeah, Apple yeah. TV. Yeah. And uh, yeah, find it and devour it. You will not be disappointed. With that, we move to Lauren. See, you did such a good job, and now I'm going to do, like, a really shitty job. What do you mean? <laughs> so, here we go. 
So I'm going to bring it back to 1998 because I was 18 and life was so fun. <laughs> life is fun at 18. Isn't uh, it? it really is. I wish we were 18 now. And uh, yeah, no responsibilities. It, it was just a good time. And I saw a little film, which pretty much a lot of 18 year olds saw this film. And it's called Disturbing Behavior. And oh, yeah. Yeah, right. Not the greatest movie in the whole entire world. I'm just going to preface that. But I really love this movie because it's just really fun. And I love Katie Holmes. I think she's a brilliant actor. And James Marsden's in it. And I love that movie that he's in that the kids watch all the time. What? What is it called? Oh, the Disney movie? Yeah. Is it Ella Ella Enchanted? No, it's just Enchanted. Ella oh, okay. Enchanted's I get, with Anne Hathaway. I get, I get the two confused. <laughs> Are they both Disney movies? Ella Enchanted and Enchanted? No, I think Just Enchanted is okay. Disney and Ella Enchanted oh. is not, but they're equally played a lot in our house. So that's the Enchanted is the one where the fairy tale cartoons come to life. Yes. And James Marsden is like a knight. Yeah, a prince or something. Yes. Yeah, it's a really yeah. fun movie. <laughs> Anyways, um, so he is not a prince in this movie. His family decide to move after his brother uh, commits suicide to Cradle Bay, and Cradle Bay has these teens that are like these perfect teens, and they're like the Stepford Wives of teenagers. Yes. And they oh. have this like really aggressive side that you see and you're just like, what? Where is this coming from? And there's just this whole theory about what is going on with the teens and why they can go from outcast to a blue ribbon who is top of their class, athletic, smart, but they're is just something off with them. And then, you know, his love interest is Katie Holmes and it stars Nick Stahl, William Sadler, Ethan Embry. And it was directed by Dave Nutter, who primarily does TV series. Yeah. He did some X-Files episodes too. Yeah. And he did oh, Game yeah, of yeah. Thrones. I haven't watched that, but I, a lot of people like it. Well, yeah. I've, I've heard about it. Yeah. Just, there's like a chair, right? Yeah, yeah, there's a chair. chair. I don't the know. with the chair. It's not horror, right? I, I mean, there's some no. pretty horrific things that yeah. happen in it. It's a pretty insane. I watched it like, I'm not a Game of Thrones aficionado either. Yeah. When did I'll, you I'll watch admit. it? I saw a, a clip because someone sent, like, was passing it around. Oh my God, you wanna, gotta watch this clip from Game of Thrones. It's so disgusting. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll watch this. Oh my God. I couldn't believe it. Like, oh, the gore. In Game of Thrones yeah. is like next fucking level. Damn. Yeah. Maybe we should yeah, watch yeah. it. I know. You know, we were, we're still catching up on Sabrina, Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Yes, then we'll we move, are. We'll eventually move <laughs> right. over to the however many seasons of Game of Thrones. Was there 20 seasons? How many seasons? Leo, do you watch that show? <laughs> I did. I did. How I many seasons of Game of Thrones are there? Oh, shit. I don't like, remember. It's so like, many. Uh, it's not worth it if you haven't started watching yeah. it already. Is that the, the exact number? <laughs> it's not that it's many. It's just that, you know, they're, they're, like each episode is almost a feature length movie. It's like over an hour. You know why? It's a commitment. And, and the, yeah, the production's insane though. Each each episode's like a full movie, full on effects. I mean, there's dragons, there's fire, there's blood, there's guts. There's like, like you don't expect the stuff. You know, it's like you don't see it coming, but when you do, you're like, holy shit! You know, there's, there's plot twists here and there, and you never expect the character to die, and then they all die, and you're like, oh man, you know. But yeah, eight it's seasons. Worth watching eight seasons, yeah. seventy three episodes. Holy shit. Yep. We'll never no, watch maybe that. Maybe when uh, like we retire or something. There's so many things right. on the list <laughs> yeah. when we retire. I it's know. Like, oh, we'll watch That's this. all we're going to do is sit in a cabin in the woods, like yeah. e an evil dead cabin. That's the goal, right? And then sit and just fucking watch shit until we die. Really? Yeah. Right? That sounds kind of yeah. depressing. How does that depress me? We just get to watch shit and eat popcorn. But I got those milk duds. I just got a whole... Fuck. Case of milk duds, Leo. Jesus. I've been ordering yeah, candy forever. direct, like this bulk candy store. And they sent they sent a flat of milk duds overnight. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> I can't wait to tear into that because that's my new thing. Milk duds in the popcorn. Have you tried that, Leo? Was it like, yes, no, not, not the milk duds. I've tried the Reese's Pieces, though, which is really good. Reese's yeah. Pieces in the popcorn? Ugh. Yes. Or yeah. do you just eat it at the same time? No, you mix it in the popcorn. That's what we or, did or with the- like a little, little handful of each, you know, of both. And yeah. Just eat at the same time. It's sweet, pretty good. Sweet and the salty. Yeah. We take a, me and my daughter, Scarlett, we started taking the box of milk does, just dumping it into a, a thing of popcorn and shaking it up the popcorn. You never know what you're going to get. Nice. Salty, sweet, salty, yeah, sweet. Yeah, but yeah. the problem That's is it. the popcorn here will never taste as good as fucking AMC. That's true. But I still, maybe it'll elevate it having the milk duds. I hope so. Maybe there's a, if you're listening out there and you've tried it, maybe you have a microwave popcorn you can recommend that would. Well, that one that Brad. Oh yeah, it was a pop secret. Yeah. I think it was pop secret. Yeah, that was pretty good. Yeah, but you know what's actually the best, but it takes time, is when you make them from scratch with the little kernels and then I put coconut oil in the frying pan that makes all the difference and then you melt coconut oil and then you put it on the popcorn and add some salt yeah it tastes like movie theater popcorn yeah is that what they use coconut yeah. oil is that why it's different i have no idea what it must is. be because it, it is mm. yeah it, it like it's night and day yeah i got that idea from my friend kennedy oh yeah she's a movie theater yeah she makes some good popcorn and then she makes the popcorn yeah. Watched, God, I missed the Harry that. Potter there. Well, they I know what they're doing through quarantine. Shit, yeah. Watching movies in their theater with the good popcorn. Damn. Maybe we can like rent it out and wear masks. And they have to sanitize it first and Okay. It's a lot of work for them. Boom. Now we'll try it. <laughs> anyway, disturbing behavior. That's right. Great movie. It is. I remember seeing it. Leo, did you ever see it? I did. I did. Now, is that uh, one of the movie Oh, sorry. What were you going to say? No, no, no. Go ahead. I was just going to say, there's a lot of horror movies in the late 90s and early 2000s that had the one song on the soundtrack. Flagpole Cinna. Well, that one as well, but the other yes. one that goes, bum ba na 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 bum ba na 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 How's it go? Stabbing Westward. Stabbing Westward. I can't even save myself. Right? Yep. Was that on that soundtrack? Yeah. Was it disturbing behavior? Or was it that other no, one? No, no, What's no. the other one that was, was kind of like disturbing Harvey behavior? Danger was the flagpole sitta one, and the only reason I remember that is because people would request it nonstop at K Rock, like nonstop. Yes, every five yeah. seconds. Would like, they ask for? I want to hear the song from Disturbing Behavior. Uh, I'm not sick, but I'm not well. That one, yeah. <laughs> and then it's like that movie and the faculty have like similar soundtrack. The faculty. Movie. Is yep. that yeah. did that one have the I can't even save myself? I don't know. I don't know. Leo was at the party where uh the lead singer of that band DJed my party. Oh, yeah. But the band it's literally literally that band Stabbing Westward was at Lauren's birthday party. Yeah, it was really DJing her party, yeah. Yep. And then not only that, what was it like a couple days later we're at the dress rehearsal? Yep. That was really fun. See, on world tour being 18, shit. That's it. <laughs> you had an awesome 18, didn't you? I did. And this movie made it yeah. awesome. Yeah, and you're right, though. It was, uh, I think it was the faculty that had that song. Mm-hmm. God, that was a good song. Was it in Urban <laughs> Legend as well? I don't know. Did they all recycle that? I mean, song? I think I, my <laughs> memory is that song was in every single '90s teen horror movie. I can't even okay. save myself. Boom! All right, we just lost like five <laughs> so listeners. Like, sounds like Nine Inch Nails or something, but like a pop version, right? No, it's it's right. good music. I'm looking up to see what all the movies that that song was in. Oh boy. Anyway, yeah, are they still around? Yeah, I think they recently put out an album. Really? I Stabbing think Westward. so. Christopher Hall. Yes, he's your buddy. Yeah. He played that. Do you think he'd? Do you think he would DJ a party here? Maybe. <sighs> you imagine a horror yeah. party for all the patrons? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have Macy Baker over here and. Brian Lopez in the backyard here and we'll jam out to I can't 
Wow, the quarantine has really gotten to you. You're losing your fucking mind. Like, I don't even know what to do with you. We should just end this show while we were ahead, because right now, I don't know what's going on. Stabbing Westward, working on their first new album in 19 years. This is two weeks ago. Oh, see? I thought it They had an EP. No, they had an EP. Okay. That was put out. uh, They had an EP called Dead and Gone. They kicked off the year with that, and now they're pushing forward with their first new full length in 19 years. Huh. Yeah, that song that song Save Yourself was on their record Darkest Days back uh ninety eight was released. When I was eighteen. I wish I could have a yeah. list of every single horror movie that song was on the soundtrack or trailer to. Well, I know that that's <clears throat> what you're gonna Google tonight, I'm sure. No, probably at will. like four, you're gonna be like, you know what else it was in? <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna tell you right now, the the move it was featured in trailers for the movie The Mod Squad and The Covenant in two thousand six. Tekken the motion picture, Sean White snowboarding, True Blood season five finale, and 1998 Urban Legend. Wow. Wow. Did you say the faculty, though? I think it was in the faculty. No. It must have been on the faculty soundtrack. No? Look it up. Faculty soundtrack. Who knew that disturbing behavior would snowball into (laughs) Faculty had a great soundtrack. That, that had really uh, the offspring. The kids aren't all right. Uh, right. Garbage medication. Haunting me by stabbing West. Ah, there was a. Stab- I don't know that. that was. I don't know that song. Thank God. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> Thank God. You also had Creed. Yeah, Creed. And Soul Asylum. Everyone you'd want on a soundtrack for a '90s horror film. Yeah, right. With the exception of. I can't even. My voice got lower. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, guys, for listening. This is the Boo Crew signing off. We'll see you next Hold time. Hold on. We got to get to our Greg Nicotero interview. Oh, that's right. Oh. Here it is. Yay. <laughs> Yay. There are things in the corners of this world that'll drive you insane. You're going to tell me what this is all about? Trust me. You've never seen anything like this. What do we do now? We run. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. All right, joining the Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studio is a gifted and groundbreaking producer and director and is by far one of the most celebrated and influential special makeup effects creators in film history. His career started on George Romero's seminal zombie film Day of the Dead in 1985, where he was mentored by Romero and Tom Savini. He formed the revolutionary K&B effects in 1988 alongside Howard Berger and Robert Kurtzman and went on to work on over 200 film and TV projects. His vast and diverse list of credits include the greatest moments in horror. Nothing was ever the same after his work in Evil Dead 2, Army of Darkness, Predator, the Elm Street franchise, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Pulp Fiction, From Dust Till Dawn, Scream 2, Kill Bill, Drag Me to Hell, Grindhouse, The Walking Dead, Breaking Bad, and countless others. His inventiveness and creativity has earned him over 23 awards, including multiple primetime Emmys and an Oscar. His work is very much the reason we love horror films. He creates the impossible, the grotesque, the unimaginable, with a punk rock attitude, whimsy, a sense of humor, and a wink. There's no one else like him. In 2019, he brought the world of George Romero and Stephen King's creep show back with a gory and outstanding vengeance. It quickly became an absolute smash with fans and critics alike, rating 92% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, hailed as one of the 10 best shows on TV right now, and has driven record growth for the Shutter streaming service, where it is its number one most watched show. It's returning for a second season, the first season available on DVD and Blu-ray now. It is our esteemed honor to welcome Greg Nicotero. Yeah. Holy mackerel. That was, uh, that was 
Unbelievable. Thanks. <laughs> well, you're unbelievable, dude. Thank you. I feel like there's somebody standing behind me. I'm supposed to duck and then they'll be like, hi, I'm Greg Nicotero. That was, uh, <laughs> that was very nicely done. Thank you. Well, thank you, man. And thanks for taking the time to join us today. And congrats on the continued expansion of Creep Show. And I thank know you. you you and the team were in production on season two. We saw the photo of that incredible animatronic spider creature you were working on right before the pandemic locked oh. everyone down. So what's the situation doing to your world and how are you guys able to soldier on or not soldier on for the time being? Well, you know, we were, um, we, we had actually shot one day. Uh, we were shooting some, some stuff with the animatronic creep puppet and some pickups for the first episode. And we shot on Thursday and then Friday we came in on the Friday the 13th and they went, yeah, we're going to uh, we're going to send everybody home. So I'm referring to this this global situation as the pause. <laughs> nice. I can't think of any other way to really to really look at it with some sort of slant that doesn't feel like, you know, the doom and gloom that the news is reporting constantly. So. I kind of like to think that we're just in a little bit of a pause or in some cases I'm standing in the corner in a timeout. But, you know, we uh, we had uh, 90 percent of the scripts written. The scripts are fan absolutely fantastic. I'm so I'm so proud of them and so, so excited. You know, season one of Creepshow was really, really difficult for me for a couple reasons. You know, I mean. I had never been showrunner before, even though I've been, you know, very hands on with Walking Dead. So I've had this weird inkling in season one that I kind of wanted to do everything myself. Like I was designing the comic book covers and I was designing the interstitial pages. And I was really, really, to be honest, way in over my head in terms of what I bit off. The fact that the show turned out as well as it did is a tribute to everybody involved. But it was really, uh, it was a really challenging and hard experience because I felt the pressure, you know, I felt George over one shoulder and Steve King over the other shoulder and the entire fan base behind me really raising the expectations. So I feel like going into season two, learning what I've learned, I had a lot more fun developing the stories and I've written a couple of the scripts myself and I just finished uh, I just finished a script that's based on a Joe Hill story. So it's it's pretty it's a very different experience on season two than it is season one. And one of the scripts that was written by a friend of mine named Frank Dietz is called Pesticide. And it's about this it's about this exterminator who does some unsavory things and he is in essence haunted by some of these uh creatures that he has killed so that's where the giant spider comes from and i'm absolutely terrified of spiders so for me to get within five feet of that puppet <laughs> is a little it's a little freaky I'm, I, I'm gonna i'm gonna be honest and tell you so that episode has some has some very significant homages to like food of the gods and like any movie that had like giant bugs that that were you know part of the story sure. <laughs> so you've you mentioned already frank deets joe hill as as possible collaborators or or creative partners in this next season is there anybody else that you can reveal at this point who are going to be a part of this adventure this time around well the, there's an author named joe conrath who i really like and i read a bunch of his stuff and fell in love with with that you know we have john esposito coming back we have david scow coming back who else? I gotta I gotta go through my scripts and and think of there's other people. There's a a woman who I worked with on The Walking Dead named Melanie Dale. Uh, she wrote a script. There's also a writer director named Maddie Dew. Her and her husband Chris Larson wrote a wrote a really cool script for us and. It's, uh, you know, I, I, I feel like having to like get all the scripts to this point and then now sit back and kind of wait is a little challenging um, for me. You know, uh, Paul Dini and Stephen Langford, who wrote Skin Crawlers last year, wrote a script for us. 
I don't want to give too much away because sure. I want to keep some stuff. But the scripts are, are really, really fun. And I can always tell if a script is successful if I want to direct it. So I'm directing three of them. And there's probably two or three more that I would love to direct if I could, because the stories, the visuals, the characters, um, they're really they're really singing to me a lot. So, oh, that's so exciting. Well, let's go back to that first season and looking at that list of fantastic actors and creators who who helped along Stephen King, Joe Hill, Tom Savini, Bruckner, Roxanne Benjamin, Jeffrey Combs. How has that process? How did that inspire you being a chance to be on set with all these people? Well, I, I can honestly say that. You know, when you get into this business, anybody that's in the film industry, you know, it's it's hard. It's not it's not easy. It might look glamorous. It might look fun. But in most instances, it really it really it just really does something to you when you put all of your heart and soul into it. You can't help but be affected by it. You can't help but take certain things personally. So most filmmakers, if you look at guys like Edgar Wright and guys like Frank Darabont and people who they have their troop around them, the people that they love to work with. Um, there's a reason for that because when you surround yourself with, with people that, that you respect and you admire and that you're friends with, they'll support you. So season one, I felt like I had a chance now to work with my friends, to work with the guys who I know would jump into the deep end of the pool if they had to without hesitation. So, you know, having Dana Gould and Jeffrey Combs and John Harrison and, of course, Tom Savini, who's been such an important part of my life for for more years than anybody can imagine. I knew that by having those guys supporting me that we would have something special. And that was, that was really my goal going out of it. And I think going into season two, I'm even embracing that really more by giving the writers a lot of, a lot of freedom to, to come up with some crazy stuff. And then it's just my job to figure out how to do it. But, you know, Jeffrey Combs, who I've been friends with for a long, since, since Bride of Reanimator, that's how long I've known Jeff Combs since 1989. The Boo Crew will be right Stephen King. His stories have terrified millions. George A. Romero. His films have frightened the world. Now, the masters of horror have created an entirely new experience. Creep Show. A movie that will give you the creeps. Creep Show. The most fun you'll ever have. Being scared. Rated R. Under 17. Not admitted without parent. I went through my phone and just started texting people. I texted Giancarlo Esposito and Tobin Bell. And I'm like, hey, you guys want to come down for three days? Like, that was the carrot. I could say it's only three days work. It's not, you know, you're not having to commit to six weeks or eight weeks and being away. You can fly down and do your thing and fly home. And with Jeff, it was kind of funny because I said, hey, do you want to do a cameo? Um, And then he came down and read the script and came into my office and said, you know, this is not a cameo, right? And I'm like, well, I needed to get you here somehow. So, uh, so he was really great. He was great about it. And he had a really good time. I mean, I also felt like I had a great opportunity to offer these actors challenge roles that they had never done before. You know, Adrian Barbeau and Trisha Helfer and, you know, DJ Qualls, who, who, by the way, I think, the guy should win a freaking Emmy because his performance in the finger was so heartfelt and so real. And, you know, I really learned something from working with him. And when he left the last day, he said, you know, dude, this business will eat you up and spit you out. And he said, you really, the way that you brought so much integrity to what you did and, your artistic vision. He said, you've given me a lot of faith in the industry. That was the greatest 
compliment that I've that I think I've ever gotten from an actor. And it was really meant meant the world to me that that the people that came to work on the show saw the spirit with which we were um, intending to put into the show in the heart. And and it's all there, man. I mean, every every ounce of it is on the screen. Yeah, Greg, uh, my personal favorite episode is The Finger with DJ Qualls, uh, with the creature named Bob and him breaking the fourth wall and all that, uh, all the blood effects and all that. I, I had so much fun with that episode. I loved it so much. Uh, what What is your favorite episode from the season? Well, you know, it's a really interesting scenario because every episode is so different. I'm really, really proud of The Finger. You know, that was the first short story that we read when we started looking for material. It was written by David J. Scow, of course, who's a, who's a dear friend of mine. And I wanted to direct it. As soon as I read it, I'm like, I want to shoot this episode. It's very different than the, uh, anything that I had ever done before. And I felt like I had a really great opportunity. And, you know, we did all of the puppet work practical. There was no CG except for wire uh, rod removal. Even the wide shots of him running around, we made a stop motion puppet. You know, I mean, I remember somebody saying, oh, the CGI didn't look very real. And I was like, haha, shows what you know. But I just, I thought that he brought the perfect sense of emotion and comedy and and just him sort of feeling like the world has wronged him. Uh, and I thought DJ did a great job. So I was really amazingly proud of that episode. And uh, I would say probably, again, it's really, it's really challenging to say. I love Bad Wolf Down. I love The Companion. I love Lydia Lane. You know, I mean, they're all great and they're great for different reasons. You know, I, I was a big fan of David Bruckner's. I was a big fan of Roxanne Benjamin. So the opportunity to, you know, not only work with veteran filmmakers like John Harrison and Tom Savini, but to be able to work with these newer, uh, these newer directors on the horror scene was really exciting for me. And I thought the companion had a lot of mood and a lot of style. And I thought Roxanne did a great job. The whole point of Lydia Lane was intended to be my homage to the drop of water episode of black Sabbath, where the corpse just keeps opening its eyes and, and it's moving and coming back. And I came up with the idea for that story when I was, I was watching a game of Thrones episode and there was a character I can't remember because it was the names were so convoluted. Um, but there was a, a mother who basically the idea was she was going to be put in a cell and watching her daughter die and she couldn't do anything about it. And I thought, wow, what a horrible idea that you're trapped in this small room and you can't get out and you have to watch this corpse deteriorate in front of you. That was where the, the sort of idea came out. And then that the sort of uh, Mario Bava Black Sabbath homage was 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 in there, too. So that's kind of how I came up with that concept for that episode. And, you know, I think Trisha, you know, I never met an actor so so down for anything and so prepared like she just showed up and i think we shot that episode in three days wow. we had one day we had one day in the office and two days in the elevator and that was it so these actors had to show up they had to know all their lines they had to know you know there was no like hey so i'm not quite sure what my motivation and we didn't even have time to so the actors really showed up, you know, um, Bruce Davison was fantastic in Night of the Paw. You know, Adrian, when we did Grey Matter was really funny because we did all her scenes in one day and it was like 12 pages. She's like, do you guys always work this? <laughs> you do this much in a day? And I was like, well, we don't really have much of a choice. And then Tobin and Giancarlo, I just said, guys, just... I just want to see the chemistry between you two. So have fun with it. If you want to ad lib, you want to just, just, I want to feel like you guys have known each other for 30 years and they had a blast. And when they walked on the set of, of uh, Richie's apartment, when it was, which was sort of my homage to um, the, uh, the Stephen King original creep show episode, 
the one where uh, Jordi Verrill. So we had a little Jordi Verrill, you know, homage in Richie's apartment. But I'll tell you when when Tobin and Giancarlo walked in there, they were like, dude, we don't have to work too hard to be scared or freaked out. (laughs) This is kind of freaky. So some of the props from the original Creepshow movie have made their way into the show. How did you find them and will they make their way into season two? Yes. Well, the crate, the original crate is is part of my collection. Oh, no uh, way. Oh. Yeah. Tom Savini. Uh, Tom had one of the crates. I think George had a crate. And then I know there was a little miniature crate that they pushed uh, that they dropped into the uh, quarry. And I think John Harrison has that. But Tom was remodeling his his house. This was years ago. And he knew I had always wanted it. And he's like, well, listen, I got to get I got to get it out of here because I got to remodel my attic. So if you're still interested, I'll trade you something for it. So I think I trade. I don't even think I traded him like a replica of Gort from Day the Earth Stood Still. You know, that's and then there was, a you know, a lot of other pieces, you know, the original ashtray, which is kind of a weird sort of nerdy fan um, thing. But. When they were shooting the original Creep Show in Father's Day, there's this ashtray that's a marble ashtray with a little silver cherub sitting in it. And I want to say that Nick Mistandria, who was the key grip uh, for all of George's movies, they kind of made this joke where they started putting the ashtray in every segment. So if you look really hard in the original Creep Show movie, the ashtray shows up all over the place. So a friend of mine who's a big prop collector has the ashtray and he's like, we should put it in the show. And I was like, yes, please. I had a mold of it, but he had the original one. So in a lot of instances, we were, you see that ashtray in multiple uh, segments of the television show. And I think we're going to do it again this season. Oh, that's so fun. Again, just so that fans know that we're not fucking around. Right, we're right. Serious about having some fun. Well, let's let's talk about collecting and surrounding yourself with props and visual art by people like Rob Birchfield and Jim Peavy. I know you got a couple pieces recently. What do you get from surrounding yourself in the art and creations of of other people? Oh, good lord, that's um, that's a great question. You know, so much of what. I collect really has a ton to do with with my childhood and and the things that inspired me when I was younger. You know, I just started I just bought a bunch of sketches from Frederick Cooper and I the art of it. I just I was always I think when I was a little kid and I would watch Chiller Theater on Saturday nights, I would sit with a sketch pad in front of me and I would draw and that was one of the things that I would do while the monster movies were playing. So it sort of became this kind of hand in hand uh, ritual of mine. You know, my grandmother on my dad's side was an artist. And when I would go to stay overnight at their house on the weekends, my grandfather would play the super eight castle films, digest monster movies. And my grandmother and I would draw. So I I made this very early on connection between monsters and paintings and drawings and artwork. And so I started becoming enthralled with movie posters and movie poster art, like, you know, the towering Inferno poster that John Berkey did. And, and, you know, the, the paintings of Drew Struzan, you know, the squirm painting and the food of the gods paintings, which, You know, it didn't matter how shitty the movie was. (laughs) If the movie poster was good enough, you would go see the movie. It was such a brilliant strategy of marketing. And I think I was one of those kids that you'd look through the newspaper and you'd see an ad. And that's how they lured you in. It was like, you know, it was like Pennywise sort of luring you into the sewer. If Pennywise was in the sewer with like, an original painting of the green slime movie poster, I would be a, a goner in a minute. <laughs> so I've started collecting some of those paintings. You know, I have a lot of pieces from, from Basil Gogos, even like the original Dawn of the Dead, you know, when Dawn of the Dead came out and guys, you got to remember one thing, like the internet didn't exist. So 
you had to work at it. If you were a fan of horror stuff, the only outlet you had until until 1979 or 1980 was Famous Monsters. So if you were a monster fan, you had to work. You had to do your research and you had to you had to look through TV Guide and circle when Seventh Voyage of Sinbad was going to be on. And you had to be in front of your television at one o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. And I always felt like that effort is what bound that sort of generation of filmmakers like Rick Baker and John Landis and Rob Bottin and and um, Frank Darabont and and all these people that were inspired by Ray Harryhausen and inspired by Universal Monsters and Guillermo del Toro and Eli Roth and all of us, you know, those of us that are a little bit older have more of a sort of classic monster sensibility. And I think when you have sort of younger filmmakers that were that were introduced to horror in the 80s, it was a different world because you had the thing in American Werewolf in London and the howling and Dawn of the dead later uh, earlier. And so, you know, I felt like I had a, a bit more of a sort of a classic horror sensibility. So I'm really into, into those kinds of drawings and paintings. And ironically, I was saying, I have the, the Dawn of the dead poster book, you know, when you bought the Dawn of the Dead poster book, there was a couple pictures behind the scenes of them making the movie. That was it. That was all you could find. And if you wanted to know more about how Dawn of the Dead was made, you'd have to like scour the pictures. And when you would fold it out, there was a big giant painting by a guy named Ron Mahoney that you could hang on your wall of zombies. So uh, a friend of mine sold me that original painting. So I have that painting uh, in my collection. And then literally about three weeks ago, I was having lunch with Drew Struzan and we started talking about some of his paintings and he's like, yeah, you know, I kept all of my originals, you know, like I made a deal early on that I would do the drawings, but that I kept the original paintings. And I said, wait, you have the food of the gods painting. He said, not only do I have food of the gods, I have the squirm painting too. Whoa. No way. Wow. So, those paintings now are framed and hanging in my living room. <laughs> of course oh they are. Oh, my gosh. That's because, amazing. And it's funny because, you know, I've known Drew for a long time, and it's kind of like keeping it in the family. I was I was more than happy to 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 donate to, to Drew's retirement and get a chance to preserve these two brilliant and beautiful pieces of art. And again, like I was saying, the movie's eh, not so great. But when you look at the artwork and you realize that Drew Struzan's artwork is almost single-handedly responsible for the cult status of, of a lot of movies, a lot of movies. So I, so I have a really unique relationship with the, the people who painted the movie poster painting. So like Robert McGinnis, who did all the James Bond movies, and um, McCarthy, who did the Valley of Guanja. I mean, I, I know the artists and I follow the artists and, and, and do a lot of research. But, you know, most of the time, really sadly, those those posters were just they would photograph them and they'd take them out and they'd stick them in a flat folder for a couple of years and then they would just throw them away. Unbelievable. Wow. As far as props go, is there a grail piece out there, something that you would just love to acquire and be able to get a hold of and just see uh, how they did it and how they made it? Well, actually, I, I can kind of say that that already happened for me because uh, last year we acquired the remaining fiberglass cast of the shark from Jaws. Wow. Whoa. That was it was in a junkyard. You know, the, the, the quick backstory was when Jaws came out, they had the backlot tour at Universal but they didn't have anything to represent the biggest movie in the world at the time. So the universal executives like, we need to make a shark and we need to hang the shark in the back in the backdrop to a uh, backlot tour so that people can take pictures with it. We need like some photo op tourist attraction kind of thing. So they ran a shark. It hung in the, in the studio from 70 early 76, I think 90, mid nineties, maybe 92. And then they got rid of it and upgraded it and made a new shark. So that shark went to a junkyard in Sun Valley. So any real Jaws fans knew that that shark was there. So people would drive by this junkyard 
they would drive by the junkyard and they would walk through and just look at the shark. And I think I offered the guy like a couple thousand dollars just to buy it. And he was like, no, you know, it's ours and we're not interested in selling it. So about three or four years ago, the junkyard closed and they donated it to the Motion Picture Academy Museum. So I reached out to the museum and said, listen, my name is Greg Nicotero. Uh, you know, I consider myself sort of a Jaws aficionado. I have a makeup effect studio. We would love to restore the shark in exchange for like it being my donation to the museum. And they agreed. And in January of last year, they had a truck pull up with a giant crane on it. And we got the piece and we had to strip off all of the paint we had to cut the mouth out like it was incomplete, like it didn't have the inside of the mouth. It didn't have the claspers and the surface was kind of cracked with spiderweb fiberglass cracks from just years of exposure. So we stripped the whole thing. We refinished the exterior. We sculpted new claspers. I sculpted the entire new inside of the mouth and the tongue. And I got castings of the original teeth from Roy Arbogast, who was the special effects technician on the movie. And we restored and repainted and brought back to life uh, the shark as it looked when it left Los Angeles on a truck to go to Martha's Vineyard to shoot the movie. So to me, uh, I think one of the highlights was I invited a couple people that worked on the movie over to the shop when the shark was finished. So Joe Alves, who was the production designer, Roy Arbogast, who was a special effects artist, and Jeffrey Kramer, who played Hendrix. I said, guys, you should come up to the shop and see the shark. And they showed up and I could, just by looking at their faces, they hadn't seen that shark since 1974. Amazing. And Roy wow. Arbogast, like Roy Arbogast is a legend in the effects business. He's worked on everything. He worked on John Carpenter's The Thing. You know, he, he literally one of the one of the greatest effects technicians in the industry in history. And he got choked up seeing it again. And and to me, I felt like I had just been able to give him this gift. And the gift was a salute and a tribute to every single special effects technician that read a script that was brought into a producer or a director's office and said, this is what we want you to do. Now go do it. So I, I feel like my little holy grail uh, moment, I'm honored and fortunate enough to say that it happened. So when the Academy Museums, hopefully at the end of the year, like it's planned, everybody will get to see not only the fruits of, of our restoration labors, but they will really get an opportunity to appreciate the sheer magnitude of what was asked of those guys. It's basically like saying, you're going to throw a Greyhound bus in the water and you got to pull it through the water and it's got to look like it's a, it's a shark. I mean, I look at it and every time I, I'm standing next to it, I, I go, how the hell did anybody where do you start? Where do you fucking start? Like, OK, so we're going to build a 25 foot shark and we got to I, I wouldn't you know, I wouldn't even fathom that. And that was in 1974. That wasn't even now where everyone's like, oh, well, you could just do it digitally or you could 3D print the whole section and you can – none of that existed. This was like, all right, guys, the only time anybody had ever done anything like this was the squid from 20,000 Leagues into the Sea, and that was on a soundstage. They wanted to – you know, Spielberg wanted to shoot. I mean, everybody knows the story, of course. So that's my holy grail. Greg, so there are uh, young filmmakers out there like Joe Bagos and uh, Chelsea Stardust that have made some recent genre films with practical effects, with movie and television studios moving towards digital effects, which most of the time, you know, look bad. What's the uh, current state of practical effects? Are these talented artists, FX creators such as yourself uh, in demand again? Well, I, I will say one of the things that I'm most proud of with The Walking Dead is that I feel The Walking Dead has provided a much needed spotlight on practical effects. In the, you know, in the late 70s and early 80s, there was a big boom on makeup effects. 
And then in the mid 90s, after Jurassic Park and the abyss, it, it became like a big visual effects world. And listen, in terms of tools of the trade, um, everything has a place. But with The Walking Dead, the fact that we were able to put in millions of people's living rooms every Sunday night practical makeup effects by showing them zombie makeups that were done not with a computer, but by talented sculptors, makeup artists, mold makers, painters, fabrication technicians. I really do think that uh, that The Walking Dead did a lot for sort of rejuvenating the appreciation for practical makeup effects. And that that's one of the legacies that I feel the show is going to leave. And that makes me very proud. You know, there's always a delicate balance. And, you know, ultimately, too, and this is said purely out of experience from season one of Creepshow, is... If you really go back to the 70s and the early 80s and you think about a lot of those movies that were big makeup effects heavy, you know, Dawn of the Dead, the budget for Dawn of the Dead was a million dollars. They didn't have a lot of money. So it forced you to be resourceful. And same with Evil Dead 2. I think Evil Dead 2 was made for under $3 million. It wasn't like we had millions and millions of dollars to do all these practical effects. People had to be resourceful. You know, I think if you looked at the a graph of movies and how much money was put towards practical effects and how much money was put towards digital effects, you would notice a very, very large discrepancy. And that if they had probably been willing to commit as much money to practical makeup effects earlier on, those makeup effects probably they would have had more uh, success. But a lot of those films didn't have money. They didn't, you know, I remember Joe Dante saying that they didn't have a lot of money to do the howling. You know, you had a small crew and a couple guys and um, and that was it. But what Rob Bottin did with, you know, changed changed filmmaking. I had to highlight this. This is probably one of our grail pieces to get if we're collectors as well to get anything from a movie. And I wanted to talk about your experience on 2009's Jennifer's Body. Oh, wow. Wow. (laughs) I'm assuming it's probably something that you don't get asked about very often, but I I don't, I don't listen. I mean, I, that, that film, you know, I read the script, you know, um, Diablo Cody wrote the script, which I loved. And I was a big fan of hers and Karen, uh, Karen Kusama, who's a huge director. She's done an amazing, she has an amazing career directed the movie. I think that movie's kind of ahead of its time, in in my opinion. I think it's really funny. It's really clever. You know, we did most of the prosthetic work that we did was her jaw extension. And then we did a bunch of cadavers and corpses and stuff. But a lot of it was digitally augmented. You know, when she would open her mouth, we had a prosthetic that she would wear. And then we painted like a little green sort of like V-shape in the corner of the mouth um, that they would augment so that it looked like her mouth and her jaw was distending. But I I was super proud of the work that we did on that movie. And I loved the script and I loved the director. And I think that's the kind of movie that people will probably appreciate more as time goes on. So what happens to all that stuff in, in in terms of like, you know, you make a bunch of dead bodies for a movie, you make a prosthetic puppet, you do you do all these things. Do you keep that stuff in your own archives as a production? Take that stuff? Do you throw it away? What happens to all that stuff? Most of it we keep. A lot of it is because we keep it so that like when the production calls and says, hey, we're doing reshoots and we need to get that that puppet back or um, so most of the times we, we keep it, you know, one of the big regrets was for me was, you know, in the mid, I want to say mid nineties, you know, when planet Hollywood was big, guys would come by the shop and they would want to buy props to put on display in all the planet Hollywood restaurants all around the country. And they had deep pockets. So they would come in and they would throw a bunch of money and say, we want to buy all this stuff from Army of Darkness. And we want to buy all. So a lot of the stuff that we had at the time, because I'm a collector, I keep things. You know, I mean, there's stuff that we did. I still have like 
one of the ears from Reservoir Dogs I have. And there's a lot of there's a lot of prop pieces from KB's history that I kept that I really that meant something to me. But, you know, we sold off a bunch of stuff when Planet Hollywood would show up and this guy would walk in with with, you know, a big bag of cash. But, you know, the truth of the matter is now that stuff's even more valuable than ever because there's less and less practical pieces being made. You know, I mean, I just acquired the rod puppet. There was a full size rod puppet that was created for the howling. Yes. Uh, a werewolf and it was never shot but there's these famous photos of jeff shank working in his driveway laying hair on this magnificent werewolf and i just recently acquired that puppet and it's in pretty bad shape because it sat in somebody's garage and then every halloween they would throw it in their yard but you know i talked to uh one of the most renowned restoration guys tom spina and Tom Spina is going to restore the head and we're going to restore the body. So I'm, I'm kind of actively now acquiring props and restoring them. You know, I have a casting of one of the thing dogs, uh, the fiberglass piece when, uh, when they uncover it and they, you know, when he's walking around, go, oh, that's not dog and that's this. And, you know, I, you know, um, that, that great scene. So not only we, did we, assemble and put that fiberglass piece together, but I'm recreating the entire diorama. We foam carved some burned dogs and I pulled some tentacle molds from the mist and we're making some tentacles. So to me, I like the idea of creating an experience by looking at something, you know, like you're not just looking at a raw fiberglass casting, but you're actually looking at like a representation of that piece from the movie. So, you know, fortunately my wife, tolerates my uh this crazy hobby of of collecting and preserving stuff and you know my kids my daughter loves it because she's a big horror fan so well so is all this stuff finding a home in your house do you have it on display just when you walk in kind of thing or or at the shop how does that work a lot of it most of it is at my house and then a lot of it is at k&b but sometimes i think howard gets a little frustrated when i keep when I keep bringing these big giant prop pieces into the shop <laughs> and sitting them on a table, you know, I have a casting from the original molds from the first alien that I got from, uh, from Giger's estate 25 years ago, probably. And I have the actual original mold of the animatronic head from alien. What? So was, That's was, amazing. Uh, it was sitting outside a garage in Burbank and, I was like, we have to preserve this. And they probably only made three or four of them because, you know, they made the, the, the animatronic one and then they made the one that the stunt guy wore. And so I, they made, I think, four or five different heads. But that mold literally was probably ran five times, but it's it needs to be preserved. So we brought it back to the shop and I redid the uh, the exterior uh, jacket for the silicone and we ran one copy out of it in case the mold ever falls apart. But, you know, I have this fiberglass cast and it, you know, when Giger did that sculpture and he put all the little pieces of corrugated tubing in there and like those little plastic pipe fittings and weird things that gave it that biomechanical look. Like when you look at the original casting, the serial numbers of the parts are still on it that they probably sanded off. Wow after they molded it. So I have this, again, it's a, to me, it's a piece of history and, and it's so influential to me and it's so important to me to, to preserve it. And, you know, I mean, I've talked to Mopop up in Seattle about putting a lot of this stuff on display up there at some point, because I think people should see it. It's too beautiful and it's too much a living representation of all the artists that were involved. Oh my god, dude! We could talk to you for like two hours about this. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> even kidding. Any shit. Yeah. <laughs> well, dude, I know you got to get going, and we wanted to thank you so much. And again, season one of Creep Show available to stream on Shutter and own on Blu-ray and DVD at time of release. Greg, thank you so much, my man. 
Guys, I'll have me back anytime. Dude, I got plenty. To, I got plenty yes. of cool props to talk about. Yeah, Dude. you have to come to our oh. studio. Yeah, we got to do it. We got to do an exchange where we can show you our collection. We want to see yours, which is all which right, will well, make ours look like nothing. When, this, when all this craziness is done, we'll do a remote. You guys can do a remote from my place. And then I'll come to your place. Oh, we'll set it up. Guaranteed. Oh, man. Dude, that's awesome. be the best. That was the Boo Crew Podcast episode 131. Special thanks to our guest, Greg Nicotero. Follow him at Gene Nicotero on Instagram and get season one of Creep Show on DVD and Blu-ray now. If you like this conversation, be sure to check out episode 15 with Pat McGee and episode 69 with Megan Fox. Also, please rate us and write us a review on Apple Podcasts if you enjoy what you are hearing. We appreciate that so much. Production tracks provided by Powerman 5000. Till next time, it's the Boo Crew saying sweet screams. It's time for this a boogeyman to boogie. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shands and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shands, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shands. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the bloody disgusting Podcast Network. Bye. A bloody disgusting podcast network. Home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews. SCP archives. Weekly full-cast storytelling. Horror queers. Genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective. And creepy. For disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out, and we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now.